I think if you give patients more autonomy in their own choices, you'll find that they have better satisfaction. This is the Pulse Podcast, a series of healthcare insights. You just heard from Dr. Amy Ho. She's a resident physician at University of Chicago Medicine. She sat down with us at the American Academy of Emergency Medicine to talk about the trends in international residencies and how technology is improving the patient experience. Enjoy. I think patients want to feel like they're part of their care. I don't feel, I think they want to feel like things are being done to them. Um, so I think making technology part of that makes it easy for them to, for them to remember what happened also, for them to be able to say, like, here's what, you know, my doctor said, here's the picture of the image that they showed to me, and be able to show it to either their other friends that are doctors or even show it to their own primary care. I think ultimately we want you to have a medical home, but most people realistically aren't going to have one, but they can have it on their phone. Like they have all of their records, all their notes. You can show it to one physician that can coordinate all your care. And I think that helps a lot. You're a resident physician at University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So what have you found to be some of the differences with residencies around the world? You know, because I talked, I talked to our speakers from um, Poland that are here on the same panel, and it's really astounding because um, we whine and moan about ACGME and their rules and all the things we have to do to comply by their rules. But we're largely protected and also very funded by the government, which is not formalized in the infrastructure in Poland, which I think um, contributes or produces very interesting obstacles for them because they're not formalized. They're not recognized in their residencies. There's no, uh, you know, with all my issues in the match process, it still is a formalized, recognized uh, entryway into a job market. For them, it's a lot more fluid and I think unstable, um, which makes it hard to recruit physicians as well. Um, It's, again, it's, you kind of see the grass on the other side now. So my issues with the match was always that you know, it forces you into a choice functionally. But I see them and they're all on their own. They have no government funding, which we enjoy a lot of. So while we still lobby for, you know, increased funding in graduate medical education here, you kind of see the other side where they have absolutely nothing. I wouldn't even dream of lobbying for graduate medical education because there is no graduate medical education. What have you learned about any, I don't want to use the word trends, but just the way research is done from around the world and how there's a collaboration with all physicians on trying to use use all the research as much as possible. I think it's similar there as it is over here. Uh, you know, there's big ex- academic institutions, there's grants, but as you get into different countries, there's less than lunch grants, so it's more privately funded. Um, I, I think the access is really different to, to research. And it was interesting, there was recently a news article about a woman who, was, who I believe was a basic researcher, like not, not in medicine, but she basically went around, got a bunch of logins, from academic universities and downloaded papers that people were searching for around the world. So third world countries could get access to this article in New England Journal of Medicine. She's getting sued right now. But it's an interesting concept to be able to have free information like that because ultimately it does benefit patients, it benefits medicine, and you know it benefits kind of upholding like the health of humanity as a whole. <laughs> Having access to all the information, all the research yeah. that can be used. So how have you, what are your thoughts on the decision-making process for for the physician and the patient alongside each other with having access to all of this research, how do you see that shifting either the patient experience or the outcome that can be anticipated from that? 
I think if you give patients more autonomy in their own choices, you'll find that they have better satisfaction. And I would suppose that you would have less lawsuits as well. If you offer that, you know, look, I can give you an LP to rule out your subarachnoid hemorrhage, or I can give you a CTA, but if that CTA is negative, then there's still this percent chance that you still have a bleed. If you are willing to assume that risk, then we can avoid sticking a needle in your back and we can just do the imaging. But I, th- I think understanding that and being able to say, here's the study about CTAs and their negative predictive value, and here's the studies for LPs and their negative predictive value, and letting the patient see that is important. Otherwise, I think the conversation gets more convoluted into things that are more subjective, like, oh, this might hurt, and this might cause kidney issues, and this might be uncomfortable, which are... See the information right there. And with with issues of, like, health literacy, where patients don't really know what's going on, I still think it's important to, you know, sell your ethos and say you do know what's going on. Because one of the problems in emergency medicine is you have a very small amount of time. You haven't known this patient for years. So you walk in, you say, hey, my name's Dr. Ho, how's your diarrhea? Which is a very awkward sort of transition, but so you have to prove to them and make them comfortable in your hands and prove to them that you know what you're talking about, which I think study base is very a uh, good way to go for that. That makes sense. I just want to start with that earlier, um, just along the lines of building trust. Yeah. It's hard to do in a short period of time. How do you do that? I, I think it is about showing what your decision-making process is. So when I order things, I don't, you know, just order them. I tell them like, hey, I am really worried about, you know, you having um you know a head bleed or we have rules that have been studied well that say that if any of these four things are true then we should image because there's a higher probability you having significant trauma there is radiation risk but you know you this study says this percentage is likely that you have a significant injury it's like do you want to assume that risk and usually they don't and so that's a good way of putting into showing that you know what what you know and you said earlier about less lawsuits that's that's coming from oh you didn't I just did this thing and you didn't tell me that yeah. I might have yeah. X. And that's y, one of Z. the hardest things for us, I think, with um, things going towards technology, with medical records and ordering tests from technology, is that the medicining, I feel like, is really done from behind the computer screen. Because truthfully, that's where I order all my tests. That's where I do most of my thinking. But the, but the health care, the actual care part of it, is being done at bedside. So you have the health part being done behind a computer. You have the care part being done at bedside. And I think we forget about the care part at bedside after the initial assessment a lot. Final thoughts from you about just what your hopes and dreams are for the future of healthcare. Um, I really do hope that patients and physicians can be a little bit more alongside each other. I, I feel like right now you have the image of a physician looking at a patient, a patient looking back, you being on opposite sides. But I feel like it should be more of like an in-step walk. Um, I think technology will help that. I think information will help that. So I hope that's where things go. Thanks for listening to the Pulse Podcast. For more thoughtful insights from healthcare trailblazers, visit www.evidence.care/pulse. Thanks.